Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, happy pandemic. <laughs> you know, walking, there's this path along the Columbia River that is uh, just a little ways from our home. And Louise and I have been walking that every day, sometimes a couple of times. You know, it's, a, it's about a mile and a half long walk. And I've been trying to come up with a greeting for people, you know, as we separate ourselves by six feet as we pass on the path and we both walk onto the grass on either side. So I'd been saying, happy pandemic. And, you know, I'd got a laugh from a couple of people and walking along and one of our neighbors, uh, you know, that we've seen, we don't know him, but we've seen him a, a number of times. He's walking by with a stroller and I said, happy pandemic. And he gave me the funniest look and I suddenly realized this guy is Chinese. He's Chinese ancestry. And it just suddenly hit me. My president has been making racist remarks about Chinese, you know, calling this the Chinese virus. And he's probably wondering if I'm some fool who listens to Rush Limbaugh or something. It's like, oh my God, you know, you, you can't. It's, this, this is what Trump has brought us to. I mean, there's a joke floating around the internet. How do you know if you have the coronavirus, right? How do you find that out? And the punchline is cough in a rich person's face and then wait for their test to come back. Right. I mean, you know, the rich and powerful, Rand Paul got tested. He wasn't even, even symptomatic, but hey, he's got the virus. The rich and powerful are having no problem getting tested. The rest of us, eh, you know, it ain't happening. And in fact, in large parts of the country, even the rest of us with severe symptoms are not getting tested. So the question is, you know, what, what do we do about this? I mean, it, it, well, actually, the question goes beyond that. I mean, the United States and South Korea diagnosed their first cases on the same day toward the end of January. Uh, South Korea activated their pandemic response team that day. And within a week, they had approved. And my apologies for the kind of rattling noise that you hear in the background. I'm doing this show from my, my home office, and there's a little... Um, there's a little balcony right outside the window, and above the balcony is kind of a cloth, you know, roof, I guess. And uh, we're getting a wind here. When the winds come out of the, I guess it must be the south here, it, they bang that thing around, and, and I've tightened it up as much as I can. So we'll just have to put up with that noise. Anyhow, so in South Korea, when they had their first case of this, the first thing they did was, you know, within a week, they had 
gotten World Health Organization approval for a test kit that actually worked. And they'd gotten a couple of South Korean manufacturers cranking them out. And within two weeks, they were testing people. They've now tested over 300,000 people. They've tested about 1 in 15 people in South Korea. Well, you know, we're not even close. Uh, Trump instead chose not to put in, back into place the pandemic, the two different pandemic teams that he had fired two years ago. And instead, he gave responsibility to the coronavirus to Jared and Mike Pence. And Jared asked his brother-in-law to ask for advice on Facebook. His brother-in-law is a doc. And he took that Facebook advice from this docs group on Facebook and put together a computer printout of suggestions for people that Trump passed out last, I think it was Wednesday. Mike Pence chose to do basically nothing. And so the world is watching as American hospitals are begging people to sew masks and protective clothing in their homes, and construction companies are donating them to the hospitals. You know, over in the Senate, you got Mitch McConnell. He's trying to come up with a $500 billion slush fund that foreclosure king Steve Mnuchin can give to anyone he wants with absolutely no oversight, no accountability, no rules, and no ability for the public to ever know where the money went. You think Mnuchin and Trump might have some specific friends in mind here? And now the media is reporting that Trump is getting tired of social distancing. He's refusing to even model social distancing in his press conferences and uh, demanding that his people cluster close to him. While Axios is reporting that Trump wants to encourage Americans to forget about the quarantine and go back to work so the market will go back up and he'll get reelected. Oh, and he wants his hotels bailed out as soon as possible. Epidemiologists tell us the worst case scenario here is 2 million dead Americans. We've got 330, I believe, million people in America. If half of us get sick, that's what, 165 million Americans? If 1% of them die, that's 1.65 million Americans. Now that's assuming 1%. I mean, we're seeing death rates as high as 9% in some places. So Trump famously said that he could kill somebody on Fifth Avenue in New York City and people would still vote for him. I guess the question for the day is, if Trump allows two, you know, a million or two million people in America to die, will he get away with it? I mean, he's done nothing but make this situation worse. And uh, now he's making it clear, you know, he tweeted last night at uh, 10 minutes to midnight, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. And I shout that because he tweeted it in all caps. Axios reports President Trump and some of his senior officials are losing patience with the doctor's order. They're watching stocks tumble and unemployment skyrocket. So therefore, in, over in the Senate, they're saying, oh, this is the perfect reason, the perfect excuse to give a half a trillion dollars to our friends to the airlines and to all of our good buddies. Now, keep in mind, the airlines who want $50 billion for a bailout took $42 billion over the last 10 years in tax cuts and bought back their own stock. In other words, that money ended up in the pockets of the CEO and, and the major stockholders. But Trump is losing patience. And, and the New York Times said at the White House, there's been a growing sentiment that medical experts were allowed to set policy that has hurt the economy and there's been a push to find a way to let people start returning to work. Quote, President Trump began talking privately late last week about reopening the nation. The president started talking about how to get people back to work around Thursday. So here we are, right? And then we had an expert embedded inside China. 
And, you know, with the knowledge of the Chinese, her name was Dr. Linda Quick. She was an American CDC employee, and her job was to be inside China, embedded in China's equivalent of the CDC, their disease control agency. And her job was to basically liaison between the Chinese CDC and the American CDC in the event of a pandemic outbreak in China. Well, back in July of last year, five months before the outbreak, Trump decided that that's a waste of time and money and defunded the site, defunded her, got rid of her. I mean, she'd been there, uh, well, actually, I'm not sure how long she had been there, but that role has been filled for quite some time. Bao Pingzhu, a Chinese-American who served in that role, worked between 2007 and 2011. And uh, Zhu said if someone had been there, public health officials and governments across the world could have moved much faster. Yeah. Yeah, you think? And scientists are saying, you know, we, you know, we really can stop this in the United States, but we have to shut down the entire country for 14 days. The entire country. And instead, Trump has done almost the exact opposite. He, Trump is doing what Italy did. And if we want to stop this, we need to do what China and Taiwan and Japan and South Korea did. They all have this under control. There are now more people, you know, dying every day in Italy than in, in China at the peak of the, of the outbreak. It's amazing. So you think Trump is going to get away with this? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Oh, and the Fed has figured out a way to do what the Senate can't do. And it might be a better idea. We'll talk about that, too, as we continue to In this week's Science Revolution, yes, you're hearing me right. Big corporations, get in the effing line behind the rest of us human beings here. Both Joel Gamble and Professor Richard Wolf join me for a survival guide in a coronavirus economy. And Richard Hallam, author of Common Sense for the 21st Century, drops by to explain what is the Extinction Rebellion and what do they do. Check it out wherever you find great podcasts. Mavericks in Edmonds, Washington. Hey, Maverick, what's up? Good morning, Tom. So, uh, update here. My town, Edmonds, mayor ordered a lockdown effective noon today. The largest city north of Seattle is called Everett, population a little north of 100,000. Their mayor ordered a lockdown over the weekend, uh, effective today. And according to the Seattle Times, the county of Yakima which has one hospital, has zero beds available. So this is getting very, very real. And, uh, you know, POTUS oleaginous, that's what I call our our leader right now. (laughs) And the people in our administration and their policies and Republican ideologies have failed the American people. And it is now painfully, dare I say fatally, obvious. I think we now have a patriotic duty to stay at home because this Mm -hmm. is damage control and it's all we can do. Yeah, I'm with you. That's my and yeah, and not just to stay at home, but to stay at home in a way that is safe where you're not, you know, going over to your neighbor's house from time to time and that kind of thing or sending your kid to daycare or whatever. You know, this this is time for pandemic lockdown. 
I'm with you. That's all I got, I Tom. You. you have a great okay. day. Thanks for your service. Thanks. Thanks. You too, Jeff. Good talking to you. Jeff in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I, I think that uh, the Democrats need to get, and I do think he will get away with it as long as there's Fox News and right-wing media that promotes this. But we need, to, the Democrats need to find somebody to come out every evening at supper time and have a daily briefing and have somebody that's really up on the science and the technology and what is actually taking place. And, and ideally, that a, would be Joe Biden. Yes, we need somebody to counteract, because what Donald Trump's doing is the same thing he did in 2016. He's getting billions of dollars of free campaign on his daily briefing, that he's given us on the coronavirus, and it all amounts to nothing, and somebody needs to come out in the Democratic Party daily and give us the truth. Yeah, My I, wife I, I is sewing masks here in Fort Dodge, Iowa, now to try to give out to people and stuff so that we can protect the wow, people around her. here. Good on her. That is great, Jeff. Tip of the hat to your wife. And if you're stuck in your house and you have a sewing machine and some fabric kicking around, Here's a place you can begin anyway. Yeah, Tom, I've been locked up for about three weeks. I've had triple bypass surgery. I saw this coming. You know, when, when you could see what was happening in China, and we knew it wouldn't be long before it was here. So we started locking ourselves down about two and a half weeks ago. Yeah, same here. Same here. Jeff, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you, and, and uh, say hi to your wife for me, and thank her for what she's doing. That's a, a genuine patriotic service. In our special video this week, it's uh, the story of what the rich libertarian billionaires who have been funding the Libertarian Party and the Republican Party for, well, in a big way since the election of Ronald Reagan for the last 40 years, and have succeeded by owning politicians and owning the Republican Party in preventing us from even getting a public option, much less a national health care system. What they are doing, what their answer is, what their response is to the question, what do we do when things really go bad? When the economy is falling apart, when epidemic disease is sweeping the country, what do we do? Well, it turns out they've got an answer. It's just not an answer for all the rest of us. They're getting in their private jets and heading off to their private little bunkers. Seriously, that's what they're up to. So I, I lay out the whole story complete with details and name names over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. Thanks so much. So the Fed is, you know, well, first of all, I got, the, I, got, I got an email this morning from the White House. Of course, I, you know, I get them uh, pretty much every day. They've got, I, I'm getting two kinds of email. Uh, I'm on the Trump campaign list, as you know, ever since I gave Trump five bucks way back in 2015. Uh, every day or every other day, I get, you know, a, an appeal begging for money. And those never mention the coronavirus. It's like it doesn't even exist. So it's pretty amazing, actually. And then the other one is I get the daily White House uh, thing that goes out to the press. Excuse me. Sneezing here. Did you know sneezing is not a symptom of the coronavirus? <laughs> so when I sneeze, that's good news, right? Okay. 
Anyway, so Congress, the Senate, what Mitch McConnell has done, Mitch McConnell is trying to trying to get this trillion dollar, two, $1.8 trillion. They're up to $2 trillion now. You'll recall the last Wednesday, I think, I said, I think it's going to take $14 trillion over an 18-month period. Basically, we're going to have to float the entire economy, or large, large chunks of it, maybe $10 trillion. Well, they're moving in that direction, $1.8 trillion. But what McConnell wanted to do was have a stimulus package or a whatever, bailout package, whatever you want to call it, what McConnell wanted to do was have this in a way that a half a billion dollars of the money would simply be given to Steve Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, the Treasury Secretary, the, the guy who was formerly the foreclosure king out in California, the one that Kamala Harris could have prosecuted but decided not to at the last minute. In any case, what McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate want to do is give $500 billion to Steve Mnuchin and let him give it to anybody he wants without it ever being reported to the American people. The information would be classified. It would be top secret. Who gets the money? And these are like grants and loans, a combination of both and all this kind of stuff. And there's very, very little for working people in there out of this $1.8 trillion. So it's gotten stopped. And the email I got from the White House today was, Democrats block forward movement or words to that effect, you know, progress on repairing our economy. And in fact, there was, you know, there have been reports of people, Democrats, going on TV and having TV commentators say, why are you blocking this money? And they're like, we're not blocking the money. The Republicans are not offering it in a way that's acceptable. It's not our fault. But over at the Fed, they've actually done something that, and they've already done it. It's why the market opened up this morning. It's why it's bouncing around um, right now. Uh, probably in the, yeah, it's down, well, it's down 751 points right now, but it had been bouncing around, you know, 200, 300 points, only two to 300 points down because of what happened, what the Fed did. The Fed said that they will make up to $4 trillion in loans to businesses. And the way that they're doing this is they're buying corporate bonds. Now, this is largely big business. Your business is probably not large enough to issue a bond. But the Fed is buying these corporate bonds, which essentially is loaning money to these businesses. And up to $4 trillion, Steve Mnuchin said Sunday, he said, uh, working with the Federal Reserve, we'll have up to $4 trillion of liquidity we can use to support the economy. These are broad-based lending programs. We can leverage our equity working with the Federal Reserve. And he said this will go through in the next 90 to 120 days. They're also... You know, now in this legislation, the Senate legislation, they want to have small business retention loans aimed at helping companies keep workers on their payrolls. Well, wait a minute. If the business has no income, you're going to give them a loan to keep people on their payrolls. Why not do what most other countries are doing and simply give them the cash to keep the people on the payrolls and have the federal government eat it? I mean, they also want to have enhanced unemployment insurance, all good stuff, but... It's really half of what we need. We need to be, for every small business, in, well, for every business in America, actually, we need to be saying, whatever your payroll is, we will give you that if you have to lay people off because of coronavirus. Whatever your payroll is, we will give you that until you can reopen. That's what we need to be doing. And that's going to cost $10 trillion over the next year. But that's what it's going to take to keep these small and medium-sized businesses in particular from failing. 
I'm not so concerned about the giant businesses, you know, failing or not failing. They're, that will always open up a possibility for you know smaller competitors and other other people to come into the marketplace. Although for a while it'll probably just be a feeding frenzy on Wall Street. But I am concerned about their workers. You know, I don't care if the airlines go down in flames, but I want the flight attendants and pilots and people who clean the planes and people who make the food for the planes and everything else. I want them to continue getting a paycheck. And if we have to channel that through those corporations during this crisis, fine. But we need to do this in a way that makes sense rather than creating a half of a trillion dollars slush, slush fund for Steve Mnuchin and Donald Trump to presumably bail out the Trump properties. We'll be back with your calls right after this. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. So Trump thinks he's going to get the country back to work soon. I don't think so. What do you think? And will he get away with the possibility of seeing a million people or more die? Welcome to Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is one of the very last chapters. It's titled Green Revolution. Just as America now faces an unsustainable thirst for energy, so too was Germany faced with a power crisis in the late 1990s. Growing demands for electricity collided with the reality that the country has no oil reserves and a strong bias among its people against building nuclear power plants in the wake of the nearby Chernobyl meltdown. Yet the government knew that the country needed the electricity, equivalent of at least one or two new nuclear power plants over the next decade. So how to generate that much electricity without nuclear power? In 1999, progressives in Germany passed the 100,000 Roofs Program, which mandated that banks had to provide low-interest 10-year loans to homeowners sufficient for them to put solar panels on their roofs. They then passed the Renewable Energy Law and integrated the 100,000 Roofs Program into it in 2004. The Renewable Energy Law, REL, mandated that for the next 10 years, the power company had to buy power back from those homeowners at a level substantially above the going rate so that the homeowners' income from the solar panels would equal their loan payments on the panels and would also represent the actual cost to the power company to generate that amount of power by building a new nuclear power plant. At the end of the 10 years, the power company gets to buy solar power at its regular rate And it now has a new source of power without having to pay and maintain and eventually dismantle a nuclear reactor. In fact, while the reactor would have a 20 to 30 year lifespan, the solar panels typically last 50 years. For the homeowners, it was a no brainer. They were getting low interest loans from banks for the solar panels and the power companies were paying for the power generated from those panels at a higher rate, uh, high enough to pay off the loans. It was like getting solar power panels for free. If anything, the government underestimated how rapidly Germans would embrace the program, and thus how quickly power would be produced by the program. By 2007, Germany accounted for about half the entire world's solar market. Just that one year, 2007, saw 1,300 megawatts, and a megawatt is a million watts, 1,300 megawatts of solar generating capacity brought online just across Germany. For comparison, consider the average generating capacity of each of the last five nuclear power plants brought online in the United States. That capacity is 1,100 megawatts. So Germany had 1,300 megawatts just in 2007 added. In 2008, Germany added 2,000 megawatts of solar power to their grid, like two nukes. And in 2009, homeowners and businesses put onto their roofs enough solar panels to glean an additional 2,500 megawatts. 
Although the goal for the first decade of this century was to generate around 3,000 megawatts, eliminating the need to build two new nuclear power plants, the simple no-risk program had instead added over 8,000 megawatts of power, roughly eight nuclear power plants. And because the generation sources were scattered across the country, there was no need to run new high-tension power lines from central generating stations, making it more efficient and less expensive. Meanwhile, as dozens of German companies got into the business of manufacturing and installing solar power systems, the cost dropped by more than half between 1997 and 2007 and continues to plummet. The Germans expect that by 2050, more than a quarter of all their electricity will come from solar. It's now just over 1%. Now, I wrote this book two and a half years ago. Germany this summer produced 100% of their electricity this way. That's how rapidly this has changed just in the last three years. It's really remarkable. Adding to the roughly 12.5% of all German energy currently produced by renewable sources, mostly hydro, but also wind, biomass, and geothermal. The solar panel program has been so successful that the German government is now thinking that it's time to back off and leave this to the marketplace, which they've largely done. And it's not just leaving it to the marketplace. They had to reinvent their grid. There's to be a smart grid to handle all the added electricity that all these solar panels were producing. They have too much electricity now in Germany. Germany is now considering incentives to its world-famous domestic auto industry to manufacture flex-fuel plug-in hybrid automobiles that can get over 500 miles per gallon of strategic gasoline boosted by domestically produced rooftop solar with existing technology. Meanwhile, Denmark has invested billions in having more than half of its entire auto fleet using only electricity by 2030. And China is no slouch when it comes to renewable energy. Although the Chinese continue to bring another dirty coal-fired power plant online about once a week, they surpassed every other nation in the world in 2010 in direct investment in the production of solar and wind power. As the Los Angeles Times reported in March of 2010, U.S. clean energy investments hit $18 billion last year. A report from the Pew Charitable Trust said a little more than half the Chinese total of $34 billion. Five years ago, Chinese investments in clean energy totaled just $2.5 billion. The United States also slipped behind 10 other countries, including Canada and Mexico, in clean energy investments as a share of the national economy. The Pew report pointed to another factor constraining U.S. competitiveness, a lack of national mandates for renewable energy production or a surcharge on greenhouse gas emissions that would make fossil fuels more expensive. The ultimate power to the people is for homes to have their own solar roofs no longer needing power lines from distant power plants owned by big transnational corporations. The crash of 2016. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. 
That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's just quickly uh, go through what some other countries are doing right now. We know that here in the United States... In the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi was able to negotiate with Steve Mnuchin and put together an $840 billion uh, package that included uh, basically extended unemployment benefits for about 20% of working Americans. It didn't hit the 80% of working Americans who either work for very large employers, small companies, work for themselves, or are working in the gig economy the low-income workers as well, most of the low-income workers, doesn't, doesn't cover them. Because Steve Mnuchin was protective of these giant corporations and didn't really want to give anything to the small companies. And so, you know, so that's, that, but that got passed. That, that was passed by the Senate. And then the Senate came up with this, you know, $1.8 trillion package. Patty Murray put a rider into there, or an amendment into there, that simply said, let's give two weeks of paid sick time and 14 weeks of family leave time, if a member of the family gets sick or has to be out or you have to care for somebody with the coronavirus or whatever, let's just give two weeks of paid sick time. We're the only country in the world that doesn't offer paid sick time, doesn't mandate it. Two weeks of paid sick time, 14 weeks of family leave time. Every single Republican in the Senate voted against it. Every single one. So, you know, it's telling you something about their values. So let's look at the rest of the world and what's going on around the world. In Iceland right now, people actually get paid for being in quarantine. Not only do you get your full salary or normal paycheck, but it doesn't affect your sick leave at all. And of course, in Iceland, all health care is free. Italy was bitten badly by a failure to lock down early on and have widespread testing, but they're offering up to 36 months, three years of pay if your job vanishes or is suspended because of the virus, the government makes a direct payment to your employer who has to pay, pass all of the money along to you as normal or in some cases a slightly scaled back paycheck. Oh, and all health care is free in Italy. 
Ireland is giving everyone, including those working in the gig economy, a temporary income and incentivizing them to stay at home if they have symptoms of the virus. They've also kicked in a 50% increase in sick pay benefits and all health care is free. In the UK, mortgages and rentals hit a three-month pause for people affected by the crisis and they have blocked evictions. The government is backstopping banks to 80% of loans made up to $5 million for small businesses. The total backstopping package for businesses, particularly in including small businesses, is 15% of the nation's GDP, which in the U.S. would be $3 trillion. Just for the loans to businesses, or just for the government backstopping the existing loans for businesses. And by the way, in the first six months, all loans are interest-free in the U.K., and of course in the U.K., all health care is free. Germany has pledged unlimited cash to businesses of all sizes, what Finance Minister Olaf Scholz called a big bazooka. Peter Altmaier, the economy minister, added, quote, we are making an unlimited pledge to the smallest businesses, from taxi drivers to the creative industry to really big firms with tens of thousands of workers. So that's happening in Germany. Even in the gig economy, everybody's getting, quote, unlimited cash to businesses of all sizes. Oh, and in Germany, all health care is free. Denmark will give cash payments to businesses of all sizes to cover 75% of employees' salaries if they promise not to cut staff, up to $3,400 per month per employee. Prime Minister Matt Fredrickson told the nation's businesses in a March 15th press conference, quote, if there's a big drop in activity and production is halted, we understand the need to send home employees, but we ask you, don't fire them. And in Denmark, of course, all health care is free. France pays up to 70% of your salary and subsidizes your employer as well. In France, of course, all health care is free. Under normal circumstances for shorter periods of time, varies by country, you get a month's paid sick leave every year in Norway, Malta, Luxembourg, Germany, Croatia, Austria, and Belgium. All those countries are looking at extending that month of free paid sick time to longer periods. Oh, and by the way, healthcare is free in every single one of those countries. Here in the U.S., we've done virtually nothing. The Republicans are so committed to their Reaganomics grift that even the modest $800 billion deal that Nancy Pelosi finally negotiated with foreclosure king Steve Mnuchin only provides paid sick leave to 20% of American workers. The Trump mortgage payment freeze the administration has touted only applies to about half of mortgages, those held, federally held by Freddie or Fannie. And even then, you have to show your worthiness for the discount. And if you only lose part of your paycheck, you lose part of the postponement. And to add insult to injury under the Trump program, banks are still piling up your interest and adding it back into your principal on the loan. So when your postponement ends, you'll owe even more on your mortgage. And then, as I mentioned earlier, Washington State Senator Patty Murray tried to attach an amendment to Mitch McConnell's new trillion-dollar bailout of the airlines and other giant industries along with a nice new tax cut. Murray's amendment would have cleaned up Mnuchin's failure and had our government guarantee every American two weeks of paid sick leave, 12 weeks, I'm sorry, I said 14 weeks before, is 12 weeks of family leave covering the left out 80% of American workers, including those in the gig economy. And that was too much for the grifters at the GOP. All 51 Republican senators present, this was last week, voted against it, killing the amendment. And by the way, health care here is not free. In fact, a half a million of us go bankrupt every year because of our health care system. So that's kind of where we're at. Other pieces to the news associated with this. Uh, the Justice Department, Attorney General Bill Barr, is asking for this from uh, the Daily Kos via the New York Times. 
is asking for the right to hold people indefinitely without trial, to eliminate habeas corpus, to let judges pause trials, to extend the statute of limitations for a year after national emergency ends, and to exclude people who have the coronavirus from applying for asylum. Basically, emergency powers. Viktor Orban, by the way, over in Hungary, he has the legislature this week voting on whether or not he can rule by decree. In other words, anything he says, if it comes out of his mouth, it is now law. This is the ultimate oligarchic power grab. And of course, I've shared you know, with you before what Viktor Orban is up to. Meanwhile, over at the New York Times, this is a very troubling report. It's called Terrified Package Delivery Employees Are Going to Work Sick. An increasing number of workers sorting those boxes, loading them onto trucks, and then transporting and delivering them around the country have fallen sick. They have coughs, sore throats, aches, and fevers, symptoms consistent with the coronavirus, yet they are still reporting for their shifts in crowded shipping facilities and warehouses and truck depots, fearful of what will happen if they don't show up. Uh, Angel Duarte, a package handler at UPS in Tucson, said, I've been coming in sick because I'm worried that I'll lose my job or just be punished if I call out. I'm 23. I have no savings. I have a four-month-old son. And Angel, now that she has showed up in the New York Times, may not even have a job anymore. I mean, this is the super scary part of this. Some warehouse workers said supervisors had rebuffed them when they pleaded for bleach, masks, gloves, and a ready supply of hand sanitizer. In some facilities, even hand soap and paper towels are scarce, employees said. Employees continue to be jammed shoulder to shoulder along conveyor belts and required to maintain rituals such as security pat-downs. A UPS driver with a compromised immune system said she'd been hauling packages around Northern California despite feeling sick for a week. With an avalanche of orders, whose supervisor told her UPS couldn't afford to lose her even for a couple of days. At XPO, a big freight handler, which handles shipping for companies like Disney, Nike, and Verizon and has a large fleet of trucks that haul goods nationwide, warehouse workers and truck drivers do not get any paid sick days. The company, which has faced intense criticism from employees about dangerous work conditions in its warehouse, offered to lend workers up to 100 hours of time off, but employees have to repay the time. An XPO worker and driver said in interviews that as a result of the company's policy on sick leave, they've been going into work with coughs and worse. Dan Baker, a part-time package handler for FedEx in Nashville, worked through sore throat and stomach problems this month when he developed a fever. He told his supervisor he needed the day off. We really need you here today, Mr. Baker's supervisor told him in a text message. Wow. And then we've got the Trump cult. This bizarre cult that is formed around him and that being a public health risk to America. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Cult of Trump. A leading cult expert explains how the president uses mind control by Stephen Hassan. This is from the introduction. Just beneath the surface of Trump's woe is me facade is a messianic streak. He may not come out and say he believes he is a messiah, but he has done nothing to dispel the notion, popular among some Christian followers, that God has chosen him to be their leader. Certainly, he makes no bones about the fact that he is the only one who can restore America to an imagined past glory and save us from a terrible future. One of Trump's earliest campaign moves was to establish the image of a great shining wall in the minds of his followers. The wall was a key piece of Trump propaganda to insulate, isolate, and elevate America from the rest of the dangerous world. The idea was actually suggested by political consultants Roger Stone and Sam Nunberg, who were looking for a mnemonic device that would keep Trump on message. 
Trump didn't love the idea at first, but he tried it out at a rally and the crowds went crazy. It turned out to be a stroke of marketing genius. Not only did it play on the us versus them trope, but it also allowed Trump to conjure images of murderers and rapists amassing at the southern border. It allowed him to instill fear in the hearts and minds of his followers, far beyond what is the norm at campaign rallies, and yet straight out of the cult leader playbook. The Muslim ban, which Trump tried to implement early in his presidency, was a variation on this theme, as many of the Christian right fear that Islam wants to rule the world and impose Sharia law on Americans. Trump uses all kinds of cult tactics, lying, projecting his weaknesses onto others, deflecting, distracting, presenting alternative facts and competing versions of reality to confuse, disorient, and ultimately coerce his followers. Repetition programs the belief into the unconscious, but fear-mongering tops the list. In my experience, phobia indoctrination, the creation of fearful thoughts to promote and reinforce a desired set of beliefs or behaviors in followers, is one of the most powerful and universal techniques in the cult leader's arsenal. This is why Trump spends so much time, so much air and Twitter time painting a frightening picture of the danger posed by immigrants, Mexicans, Muslims, the migrant caravan. The more vivid the thought or image installed in people's minds, the greater hold it has on us and the less susceptible we are to rational or critical thought. There are other enemies in Trump's world, globalists, radical left-wing Democrats, socialists, Hollywood actors, the liberal media, all of whom want to destroy America. Inspiring fear of real or imagined threats overrides people's sense of urgency. It makes them susceptible to a confident authority figure who promises to keep them safe and can make them more compliant and obedient. Fear defines Trump's philosophy, his personality, and his presidency. It is also his definition of power, according to Bob Woodward's aptly titled book, Fear. In it, Woodward reported that Trump told him, quote, real power is... I don't even want to use the word, fear. Trump, like cult leaders and dictators throughout history, seizes upon people's needs and fears and amplifies them. Like these authoritarian leaders, he may manufacture problems that do not exist and then say, trust me or believe me, and promise that only he can fix it. Given the right circumstances, sane, rational, well-adjusted people can be made to consider and ultimately believe the most outrageous leaders and propositions. There is a method to their madness. Cult leaders may look and behave differently, but even the craziest, most chaotic ones follow a similar pattern. While they usually have no academic training, they are masters of human psychology, especially social psychology. They understand that human beings are social creatures who, at some level, are wired to follow leaders and powerful members of their group. They know that they can confuse people with false information and lies, and then sow doubt by claiming that they never said what they said in the first place. People like to think they're rational and in control, but the lessons of history and social psychology demonstrate time and again that simply ain't so. We go about our ways and our lives using unconscious mental models. When cult leaders manipulate these models in subtle and overt ways, we can be persuaded to believe and do things we might never have considered without such systemic psychological influence. Ultimately, their goal is to make people dependent and obedient. Before the 24-7 world of smartphones and the internet, cult leaders would physically isolate members in order to control all aspects of their lives, their behavior, information, thoughts and emotions, or what we call the BITE model of indoctrination, B-I-T-E. But physical isolation is not always necessary for indoctrination to occur. Through the media and the internet, people can be indoctrinated and even recruited on their smartphones or in their own homes. 
Some cult leaders, including pimps and human traffickers, use smartphones and digital technology to monitor and control their followers. Taken to an extreme, the indoctrination process can break down a person's fundamental identity to such an extent that they can be said to have a new pseudo-identity cast in the image of the group's leader or ideology. In her documentary, The Brainwashing of My Dad, Jan Senko shows how her once loving and liberal father, Frank, came to espouse hate-filled racist views after listening to Rush Limbaugh and other right-wing talk radio hosts for many hours a day while commuting to work. He was essentially radicalized by these shows and also by Fox News television. I have met and heard about followers of Trump who have undergone radical personality changes, adopting viewpoints that would have been abhorrent to their former selves. Perhaps most confounding is how so many devout Christians have come to believe that a man who cheated on his pregnant wife was handpicked by God. The book, The Cult of Trump. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Johnny in Galveston, Texas. Hey, Johnny, what's up? Hey, Tom. I don't see an end anytime soon to this emotional roller coaster terrorist ride that we're all taking right now. Uh, in light of the uh, unethical, unlawful, criminal way 
that big banks as well as big corporations have repeatedly mishandled the multiple bailout monies we've given them. Uh, I'd much prefer we not funnel money to the recently unemployed Americans uh, through their uh, corporate employers. I, I prefer that we should establish a separate dedicated account within the U.S. Treasury and use the IRS and U.S. Treasury records to mail the, these relief checks directly to these Americans in the same way we, we send tax refund checks every year. And we can yeah. uh, have employers send um, the IRS their current employee roster, and then we can verify that with our tax records while we send these checks out. I much prefer that than trust that these corporations are going to do the right thing. They have proven to themselves to be criminal. Yeah, the, the only problem with letting the IRS do this is that their records are very incomplete. There are literally tens of millions of, of American workers, maybe as much as 20% of the workforce, maybe even more than that, actually, when you consider the gig economy, who don't file tax returns because they don't make enough money to justify it. And those people then wouldn't get a check, and they're the ones who need it the most. I think we should right, well, take we, some sort of a, you know, use the Social Security database, something, you know, that has a list of everyone in America. When the kids get born, they get registered for Social Security right away. Um, you know, and, and, and I'm with uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. They're both saying send everybody in America $2,000 a month every single month until this white, you know, until this uh, evens out. And every child in America, every adult gets 2000 bucks. Every child gets $1,000 every single month. It's universal basic income, basically, for the crisis. Andrew Yang's idea. Only well, that would be my preference. That would be my preference, Tom. But you and I both know we have to be more pragmatic when we're pragmatic when we're dealing with a bunch of Republicans. Yeah, excellent point. Thank you, Johnny. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? How you doing, Professor? Listen, here's what we got to do. We got to uh, make goods and services free to the public, the American public. We're trying to reach everybody. And then the entrepreneur will send that bill to the government. The government will reimport, uh, re and, uh, reimburse the entrepreneur. You leave your thumbprint because not everybody's got a passport like you or driver's license like me or student ID, whatever. But people need to eat. Even if we can put on hold your eviction, even if we can put on hold your foreclosure, um, even if we give you free health benefits uh, like Bernie Sanders one, you still got to eat. You see, so people need to eat. Yeah. So this is how we reach people. I deal with people down on Skid Row in Los Angeles. You want to reach my people? Let them walk into some place and get something to eat. That's how you do something like that. And uh, I, I was really happy to see Mitch McConnell on television this morning whining like a baby. Whining like a baby. <laughs> and uh, No, it, you, you, you got to see this. And, Professor, if I could just, just say this on my way out. Baruch sure. Adonai. Eloheinu melech. Baruch Yeah. Yeshua. Amen. Thank you very much, okay. my brother. Feed, 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 feed the public. Welcome, That's how you get to them. Bye-bye. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Thank you, Morris. Good to hear from you. This uh, article in the New York Times, this is from two days ago. Terrified package delivery employees are going to work sick. That's, that's got to be one of the scariest things that I've read all week. And it's got to be happening right across industries. Um, you know, keep in mind, what is happening right now in New York's hospitals is what will be happening in two or three or four or five weeks in every hospital in this country. This is, this is stuff, we, we really need some federal leadership here. Welcome back, Tom Harbin here with you. A couple of other things in the news I wanted to share with you. John Casey is you know a writer, he's writing over in The Advocate. He says, as this crisis deteriorates, becomes unmanageable and inexplicably horrible, so will Trump's behavior. 
And I think we're seeing this in real time. We're, we're watching him melt down in these so-called press conferences. You know, he's holding these because, you know, he can't have his rallies and he needs people to say, oh, you're wonderful. He's, he probably needs to hold more cabinet meetings to get enough strokes that he feels like he can make it through his day. But John Casey goes on, a perfect storm that will unravel an unprepared, unrelatable, and unsympathetic president. A fairy tale turned into a horror of all horror stories. Spot on. Chauncey DeVega writing for Salon. Trump is a malignant narcissist, a pathological liar, and a delusional fabulist. His lack of empathy, care, and concern for others is, uh, you know, essentially sociopathic. And Dr. Brandy Lee is the leading voice in the world who is talking about the Trump presidency. She's a professor of psychiatry at the Yale University School of Medicine, author of the best-selling book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And she had a conversation with, yeah, it was with Chauncey DeVega. And she explained her view that Trump, aided by Fox News, Chauncey writes, and other parts of the right-wing echo chamber is creating a collective state of mental illness among the Trump cult members that is making the coronavirus even more lethal. As, she done, as she's done before, Chauncey writes, Lee argued that Donald Trump is the most dangerous person on the planet, and he may use the coronavirus pandemic to start or inflame mass violence in order to keep himself in power permanently. None of this, uh, you know, I, you can't put any of this uh, beyond, you know, outside the realm of possibility. And meanwhile, some of President Trump's most vocal evangelical supporters, you know, this is over at the Daily Beast, are saying the same thing. I'm, some of uh, Trump's most vocal evangelical supporters, says Guy Palma over at Daily Kos, are taking to the airwaves and telling their followers that they can physically be healed by the power of prayer. Prayer that only they, the, these pastors, can facilitate. Kenneth Copeland is doing this. You know, put your hands on your TV and I'll heal you. He blamed the virus for people's dislike of Trump. Right-wing watches Peter Montgomery told the Daily Beast, a global pandemic is the perfect opportunity for religious charlatans like Copeland to market themselves as healers. Jim Baker, of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker fame back in the day, that was back in like the 80s, I think, maybe in the late 70s. He just got busted, basically busted. He got knocked off uh, uh, Twitter and YouTube, I think it was, for selling a, an anti-coronavirus uh, herbal supplement. You know, here, if you get sick, this will take care of you. Right. Trump-supporting Pastor Rodney Howard Brown, who one of the guys who laid hands on Trump a few months ago when, when they had that infamous prayer session in the Oval Office. Last month, he says he's going to rid... Florida of the coronavirus, just as he said he did with the Zika virus. And we disturbed it, declared, declared we cursed that thing in the name of Jesus, and Zika disappeared. And we're going to do the same thing with the coronavirus. We don't need it on this shore. And obviously somebody said, well, what about the rest of the world? I can't be responsible for every city or whatever. So he doesn't care if other people die as long as Americans don't. But he's going to save Americans with his cursing the virus. Right. Meanwhile, Anthony Fauci was really pressed over the weekend when Aaron Blake, who writes the Fix column for the Washington Post, interviewed him and, and just really pushed him. And Blake, who did the interview, he says, it's been evident for a while that Trump indeed goes his own way on many things despite that advice. Fauci seems to be willing, only so willing, to downplay Trump's unwieldiness in the face of a true crisis. He openly admits the things Trump says could, quote, lead to some misunderstandings about what the facts are on a given subject. End quote. That's far from an ideal situation. Blake says, if there's one person in this whole saga who's built up vast reserves of credibility, it's Fauci. 
And even he seems to recognize that shooting straight might not be great for his long-term employability in this administration. Meanwhile, you ever hear of Dr. Peter Hotez? After years of research, his teams of scientists in Texas had helped develop a vaccine to protect against a deadly strain of coronavirus. That was 2016, and it was for SARS, which is a coronavirus. So if you've successfully developed a vaccine for SARS, it may work with a little tweaking or use the same principles and, and uh, you know, way of preparing the vaccine for, corona, for, this, you know, for the COVID-19. But, you know, they ran out of funding. This was two years ago, 2016, four years ago, 2016. Hotez, the co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital and dean of the National School of Trop Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, says, we just couldn't generate much interest. So his vaccine is now sitting in a freezer in Texas, no closer to commercial production than it was four years ago. He said, we could have had this ready to go and been testing the vaccine's efficacy at the start of this new out outbreak in China. There's a problem with the ecosystem and vaccine development. We've got to fix this. Right. I mean, he did testify before Congress and told them this story. Oh, and then this is, this is amazing. Why are we running out of masks? Because most of them are imported from China. The United States, this from uh, the Associated Press, the United States counts on receiving the vast majority of its medical supplies from China. And when Chinese medical supply factories began cutting, coming back online last month, their first priority was Chinese hospitals. And in fact, the, the government, the Chinese government, has required makers of N95 masks to sell all of their production within China. And governors across the United States are becoming panicked because hand sanitizers, swab, swab imports drop 40% from China. Hand sanitizer imports drop 40% from China. N95 mask imports were down 55% from China. In mid-February, the World Health Organization warned that this was coming and the demand was 100 times higher than normal. Prices are 20 times higher right now, not 20% higher, 2,000% higher because there was no big effort to stock up. Trump could have had us stocking this stuff up in December or January or February, but no, 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 no. He had to have his little press conferences instead. book for the Tom Hartman Book Club today is A Nation Forged by Crisis, A New American History by Jay Sexton. And I'm reading from the introduction. This is page nine. The quest for national security and global power, America's shifting position in the international economy, and fluctuations in immigration have made the United States the nation that it is today. Americans' foreign relations have conditioned its history not only in their cumulative effects over the long haul, but also as a result of their volatility. In periods of crisis, America's position in the world has lurched in unexpected directions. For as inexorable as the rise of the United States appears in retrospect, there have been contingent moments in which the very existence of our nation was up for grabs. This is the essence of crisis. The world turned upside down. The known replaced by the unknown. Panic reigning as people struggle to maintain their balance and shifts in the very ground beneath their feet. It came with a speed and ferocity that left men dazed, New York Times correspondent Elliot Bell wrote of Wall Street's catastrophic collapse in October of 1929. Quote, the market seemed like an insensate thing that was wreaking a wild and pitiless revenge upon those who thought to master it, end quote. Crises are contagious, spreading like viruses from one realm to another. 
It's not without reason that the word crisis was associated with medical conditions and health scares in the 19th century. Each of the periods under consideration in this book were less a singular crisis than a set of interlinked crises. A political crisis could trigger an economic panic, which in turn could intensify social conflict, and so on. As these pandemics spread through the body politic, crisis itself was normalized, becoming an almost accepted characteristic of an age. Just as foreign crises have spread to the United States, domestic ones have spilled across its borders, unsettling foreign countries and peoples, as well as reconfiguring America's connections to the world. Consider the fateful winter of secession that followed the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln. The crisis over slavery that divided the Union into warring sections that led to a series of sharp reversals in America's position in the global system. The foreign capital that had rushed into the roaring American economy in the preceding decades suddenly began to flee. Indeed, more capital left the United States in 1860 to 1862 than came into it, also a once-in-a-century occurrence. One of the world's most valuable commodities and America's largest exports, southern cotton, was confined to the ports of the Confederacy as a result of Richmond's ill-fated diplomatic strategy, leading to unemployment and social unrest in the British textile town of Lancashire. The most unexpected reversal was how the national security that the United States had attained after the war against Mexico in the 1840s was suddenly imperiled with European powers encroaching once again upon the Western Hemisphere. Meanwhile, the Confederate emissaries across the Atlantic in search of alliance with Britain. Our country, Secretary of State William Seward lamented in early 1861, after having expelled all European powers from the continent, now threatened to relapse into an aggravated form of its colonial experience and, like India, Turkey, China, and Italy, become the theater of transatlantic intervention and rapacity. A wider view of American history that looks beyond the nation's borders brings into focus not only the migration patterns, economic flows, and international rivalries that have connected the United States to the world, but also those rare moments in which the very existence of the nation was in question. Perhaps none was more pregnant with implications than the autumn of 1877, when the fate of the Patriots' bid for independence hung in the balance. Having proclaimed their independence to the world the previous 4th of July, their cause had stalled on the battlefield and in the diplomatic courts of the old world. I think the game is pretty near up, Washington privately confessed at year's end. To accomplish their independence is not quite so easy as to declare it, the British philosopher Jeremy Bentham haughtily remarked. But then a series of events forever changed the course of modern history. The stunning Patriot victory at the Battle of Saratoga in October. The drafting of the Articles of Confederation in November that, for all its limitations, further demonstrated the political resolve of the Americans. And most of all, the alliance signed with France in February 1778, which provided the Patriots with the resources, military assistance, and naval power that ultimately tipped the scales in their favor. There are comparable Saratoga moments in other crises in U.S. history, as we shall see. These contingent moments played out in their own distinctive ways, but are joined by a common denominator that has been curiously forgotten in our age of U.S. global power. Foreign states and people have played decisive roles in the critical moments of American history. As we make our way through our own era of global instability in an unprecedentedly interconnected world, there's perhaps no more important lesson from the past to keep in mind. Crisis may beget crisis, Franklin Roosevelt said, as his administration transitioned from battling the Great Depression to entering the Second World War. But the progress underneath does not wholly halt. It does go forward, end quote. Like so many of Roosevelt's public statements, this one reveals a truth even as it conceals others. 
The United States came out on the other side of its greatest crises as a stronger and more efficiently organized nation, as Roosevelt suggested. The process of mobilizing resources to counter threats catalyzed innovations in political economy, such as the creation of a national financial system during the Civil War, and the economic reforms of the New Deal. The book is A Nation Forged by Crisis by Jay Sexton. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.